If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9. We're going we're to finish this chapter today, I believe. So halfway through Romans 10, I'll be saying turn to Romans chapter 9 out of habit. Romans chapter 9, we're going to pick up in verse 30. If you would stand with me as we read scripture together. I'm going to back up and just start in verse 24 just to get some context here. Even us whom he's called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles, as indeed he said in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the day of the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and have become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that that there is nobody in this room that stumbles over this stone and therefore is put to shame. Lord, we pray that as we Approach this text this morning. Lord, we pray that you would help us, guide us to see truth, open our eyes, open our hearts, what you would have for us here. Lord, we pray that, that you would help us to understand how righteousness before you is obtained, how it's not. So therefore, we will not stumble. Lord, I pray that you would do amazing things here, that your spirit would be alive and and active in our lives and in our hearts as we interact with your word. Lord, we pray these things for your honor, your glory alone. In Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. Let me, let me just give you the, the point of this text. If you haven't already grasped it, this, this text right at the onset 
And that is, if anyone tries to obtain righteousness before God through any other means than faith in Christ Jesus, they will stumble over Christ Jesus and be put to shame. That is the message in a nutshell. Let's just take a few minutes and back up. Paul has just said that if he wouldn't have intervened in world history, and if he would have just let things go as they were going, if he wouldn't have intervened and saved a, a remnant, a small group of people out of a larger group of both Jews and Gentiles alike, thus creating for himself a people of God, true Israel, if he wouldn't have done this, what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah would be universal. We all would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, there's a wonderful illustration of this within the Sodom and Gomorrah narrative. We looked at this last week, and that is with Lot. Lot deserved to die in that city along with anyone else. And in fact, as Lot is being rescued by the angels that were sent to save him, we are told that he lingered yet. The city had a strange hold on him. He knew it was wicked. He kept going back to it. And even knowing that God was going to destroy the city, goes to his son-in-law and says, we got to get out of here. God is going to destroy this place. Son-in-law laughs and he lingers. But we are told that God had mercy on him. God showed Lot mercy, and the angel grabbed him by the hand and led him out of the city. In other words, if God wouldn't have intervened, then Lot and his children would have been destroyed by the sulfur and the fire that rained down from heaven on that city and all of the inhabitants of that valley, which is exactly what they deserved. Now, in verse 30, we read, well, what shall we say then? When we look at all of this, that God is saving people from the Gentiles and from the Jews, he's creating for himself his own people. What shall we say then? Look back to verse 24. It's clear that this remnant that Paul will speak of here, not only from the Jews, but from the Gentiles as well, Paul goes on to then show that that this all shouldn't have been a surprise because the prophet Hosea said as much. Notice what Paul has said. If God wouldn't have intervened and saved a group from the Jews and Gentiles alike, then all would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. And the objection here is, well, that doesn't seem to be right because the Jews had the law and the Gentiles did not. How can Paul take and put these two groups of people in the same category when they're clearly not in the same category? The Jews were definitely closer to salvation, closer to a righteous standing before God because they had the law and the Gentiles didn't. So now Paul is getting at the heart of this objection. Just remember kind of a parenthetical statement, just remember that this whole section, chapters 9 through 11, is really dealing with Israel's uh, rejection 
And Paul says that God's word, though, has not failed. Just because Israel, by and large, has rejected the Messiah, it isn't that God's word has failed. And then he gives several arguments. And really what we're getting at here is the third one. And the third one is that if Israel rejects their Messiah, it is not God's fault. It is their fault. This is... This is uh, this point in the overall argument is fairly long. It goes throughout chapter 11 or chapter 10. But as we go on here, just notice that one cannot use what Paul has previously said in this chapter to lessen anyone's responsibility before him. Some might be tempted to say, well, if God chooses some and not others to salvation, then, and he does not choose me, then I would have an excuse before him. In other words, they would say something like, well, if I'm lost and I'm going to hell, it's because of God. It's because he didn't choose me. In one respect, we've already talked about this. God does not condemn innocent people. Therefore, even though through the the process of election is is an absolute mystery on our part, we can know that if we are judged by God, it is because of our own sin and our own actions. And therefore, it is not God's fault. God is just. The fact is, we cannot blame God. The only ones to blame would be ourselves. The judgment of God will be based on what each has done. Of course, this doesn't change the fact that people are raising this objection. How in the world can the Gentiles obtain a justified status before God and the Jews not when they are the ones that have the law which is from God himself. Read Exodus. God gave it to them. Let's look at how Paul handles this. The outline of these verses is is very simple. In verse 30, Paul declares that Gentiles as a whole, he's speaking in generalities, he says Gentiles as a whole are being saved. In the next verse, 31, he says that the Jews as a whole are not being saved. And then in the next verse, he explains why. And then in verse 33, we see the consequence of pursuing a righteousness that comes through law. So that's the the basic outline. What we should comment on here is how Paul has, is that Paul has been speaking of individual election. I think you you start thinking about this and you start coming up to to things like, is, is Paul talking about individual election here or corporate election? In other words, is God electing individuals to salvation or is he just choosing countries and then letting everybody else decide within the countries? And some bring this up, and I just want to point out here, it's clearly individual. Jacob, not Esau, for instance. That's not corporate election. Some would say that that what election means here is, is corporate, that God is choosing the nation, and if they are to be saved or not is up to them and the individuals within them. Clearly, from our time in the book of Romans, and specifically our time in the book of Romans 9, that's not the case. But we should note that Paul here is speaking of broad, in broad terms. 
just as he did at the very beginning. My heart breaks for the, the people, my people. I think the best way to understand what Paul is doing here is to think of these in terms of two different categories. Gentile salvation and Jewish failure. How did the Gentiles achieve salvation when they, had the, when they didn't have the law? How did Jews fail when they had it? Let's look at Gentile salvation in verse 30. We can quickly, in a quick reading of these verses, identify the, the key word here, which is righteousness. The Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have obtained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Then Israel, on the other hand, we are told that they longed for righteousness and pursued the law to get it, but did not succeed in getting it. If I was underlining or highlighting things here, there are several things that are worth the highlight, but one would be the word righteousness throughout these verses. We need to all be on the same page here when we are thinking about this important word in the text. Sometimes we see the word righteousness and we think righteous behavior. Kind of like we see the word faith and we think faithfulness. It's not what we mean here. We talked about this several times throughout the book of Romans, most notably at the onset in verses uh, 16 and 17 of chapter 1. We said that it is really these verses uh, that Paul is taking and expounding on uh, through the whole entire book. Let's just go back and, and read those. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here at the start of the book, we see the word righteousness. And we learn that it is in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed. It's made known. Notice, not the law. It's in the gospel. That's Paul's point. He makes the point that we're getting at here right in the first verses of the letter. Jews, on the other hand, right? They're thinking, well, the righteousness of God is revealed from the law. That's why they're pursuing the law to obtain it. Here he's saying, no, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because that's where we leads us to this righteousness before God. At this point, maybe our mind is going back to the last verses in Romans 9. You picked up on the fact that Jews are trying to obtain righteousness through the law, not the gospel. But notice something else, even more foundational, I think, and that is that righteousness and salvation here are used almost synonymously. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, the same thing is, is stated again, just differently. It is in the gospel that the righteousness or salvation of God is revealed from faith for faith. The fact is the term righteousness means a right standing before God. And it means the same thing in the book of Romans in chapter 9. Our problem is that we are not righteous. 
We are not right with God. We are in a state of unrighteousness. Now, to be in a state of righteousness before God, this is, this is called justification. It's to be justified. To be justified is to be righteous before God, is to achieve a right standing before God. This is why the, the doctrine of justification by faith is so critical, it's so important, because at our core, this is what we need. We need a right standing before God. And the doctrine of justification by faith alone, as it is set forth in Scripture, tells us how we get that. So let me make this simple. If you go back to Romans chapter 9, verse 30, and take the word righteousness there, you can substitute the word salvation for it, or the word justification for it, and it makes sense. In fact, I'm not just pulling this out of the thin air, the word righteousness in Greek and the word justification in Greek are the same word. So to substitute the two isn't out of line. The translators easily could have translated it justification. So the text is saying that the Gentiles who did not pursue a righteous standing before God have obtained it. Grasp this. This is, this is, this is wild stuff. I mean, really, when you think about it, because it, it's so counterintuitive. We're talking about a right standing before God, and we're talking that, that Paul is saying here, what, what are we saying? That, that people who haven't even pursued this are getting it? Yeah. It sounds strange. Here are people who are not working, who are not striving, or trying to get it, but they still got it. Or to say it another way, the Gentiles who were not trying to earn a right standing before God by trying to fulfill God's law, but just the same, they found a right standing before God. At this point, the right question is, how? How did the Gentiles obtain a right standing before God? This is interesting because the Gentiles had actually rejected God who were running away from him, the Jews are pursuing him. This is why what Paul is saying is, is so counterintuitive. It's not what we would think would happen. One would think that if he wanted to be righteous before God, there would be something that one needs to do to strive and to work, to get it. That one would have to pursue a right relationship with God. Here we read, these Gentiles were not but they were finding it before God anyway. And the question is, is how in the world do you get a right standing before God without pursuing it? The answer is that this righteousness before God is found in Christ alone in the message of the gospel. These Gentiles were finding salvation. They were finding justification, a right standing before God because they were believing in Jesus Christ as their Savior. They were putting their faith and trust in Him as their only hope in the gospel. The objection here would be, but they weren't even seeking this right standing before God. How can they find something that they were not seeking? 
The fact is, they were embracing Jesus as their Savior. And this was God's work in seeking them through his grace. If you think this sounds funny, perhaps we aren't understanding what grace is. Grace is undeserved favor. So by definition, it is something that God extends to us, not something that we seek after. If we seek after it, then it wouldn't be grace anymore. We sing about this, the hymn, The Wonderful Grace of Jesus. We sing, wonderful grace of Jesus, reaching the most defiled. By its transforming power, making him God's dear child, purchasing peace in heaven for all eternity, and the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Over and over and over. In just, I mean, we could read the other verses as well, but it is the grace of Jesus that is extended to us, not we reaching for it. We don't reach for the grace of God. God reaches out to us in grace and mercy. At this point, though, there's really something interesting that happens in verses 30 and 31 that I want you to be aware of just briefly. In, In the ESV, we read in verse 30 that the Gentiles have attained, that's the word, attained this righteousness And then in some translations, in verse 31, it uses the same word there to speak of the Jews. They had not attained it. I think that the ESV, though, is right when it changes the wording and says in verse uh, 31, they did not succeed or did not attain it. They did not succeed in getting it. The ESV is correct not to use the same word there because in the the original language, the same word isn't used. Some translations... uh, Um, do that, but I think attained in verse 30 in the ESV should actually be obtained. The NIV, I think, if you have an NIV, I think it translates it right. Donald Barnhouse illustrates this in his commentary, uh, differentiates between the two words obtained in verse 30 and attained in verse 31. And he gives this illustration, which I thought was very good. He tells of a, a cartoon. There's a, a cartoon where there's this large boardroom, and it's a, obviously it's a large company. The president of the company is, is standing before those who are underneath him, waiting to, to hear from their president. Behind the president, who's fairly young, is a big, uh, big picture of the company's founder, who's obviously this man's father. And the president is scowling at those before him. He has finger pointed at him. And the caption says, the trouble with you people is that you have no initiative. Why, by the time I was 30 years old, I had inherited my first $5 million. My point is, there is a big difference between inheriting millions of dollars and earning it. In these verses, we learn that the Gentiles didn't set out to earn their righteous standing before God, but still inherited it. Or as the NIV says, they obtained it as a free gift. So that's Gentile salvation. Turn our attention to Jewish failure then. Now, 
Get this, that the only explanation for the fact that the Gentiles who had not pursued salvation were finding it is in the mystery of God's grace. And if we thought that was puzzling in verse 30, then 31 is even, is in a sense even a greater puzzle. Here we see that the Jews were trying to earn their salvation, but did not attain it. They did not reach to it. They did not get it. That's the word attain. They did not climb to the top of the summit. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, see that? They did not attain it because it was not attainable. Did not succeed in reaching that law. You get a picture of a mountain, don't you? They tried to reach the top of it by climbing and climbing and working to get there, to get to that righteous standing before God. And they failed. They didn't attain it. They didn't, get, they didn't reach it. And therefore are lost. Notice something here. Paul admits that the law that they were pursuing would lead them to righteousness. It isn't that the law is wrong. It isn't that the law is a bad thing. The law is God's standard. The law is a mirror of God's holiness. And in that, the law is very good. Paul isn't suggesting that the law is bad. The law is good. In fact, since the law is a mirror of God's holiness, it would make sense that if one could keep the law, they too would be holy like God. The problem is, is nobody lives up to that standard. The reason they did not attain it is that it was unattainable. Flip back to Romans chapter 2 for a moment. Romans chapter 2, I'll pick up in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Is the law good? Yeah. Yes, it is in the, the law that we know the will of God, that we know what is excellent because it's based on the, the character of God. And we can become so well-versed in the law that we even instruct others. We, we become guides and, and teachers in what God wants and desires of us. He even calls the law here the embodiment of the truth. Now the question is, what was the purpose of the law? That's a long discussion. There are three, but... It is, the purpose of the law, is it to obtain a righteous standing before God by being obedient to it? Or is it to drive us to faith in Jesus Christ? I would say the latter. But before we leave Romans 2, we should keep reading in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? Well, you preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? It keeps going on, but you get the point. In other words, those who know the law and instruct others in it, 
So parents, for example, you teach your children the way of righteousness by keeping the commands. Do this and live. But you yourself cannot keep that same standard that you're teaching others. The point is, all people can know the law. But no one can keep it. You cannot find a righteous standing before God that way. Trying to earn God's approval through the law is doomed to fail. But yet, this is what Israel believed. That God gave them the law so that they might be righteous before God by keeping it. Now here's another element. Perhaps one would say, well, technically, it is impossible to keep the law. But at least the Jews were trying. Their their desire was right. They were trying to be obedient. This means that they should have been much closer to salvation than those who had no interest in the law of God. I don't know about you, but I've heard this kind of thing a lot. When it comes to our spiritual lives, that, that it isn't about whether you are actually obedient, because we all know that we fail from time to time, but it's about your desire to be obedient. I'm trying. If you desire in your heart to be right, then it's okay. If you mess up, we can just overlook it a little bit because after all, in my heart of hearts, I'm striving after obedience. I want to do that. I just keep failing. So really, in the, I'm, I'm doing it, it right. Someone might say something like, I know that God says that I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. Right? Actually, Jesus said that. It's a summary of the second half of the, the Ten Commandments called the Second Table. I know the Bible says that, but this, that, and the other thing keeps coming up, and I just keep, I just keep messing up. But I have a desire to obey. I want to obey that command, but other people keep doing things that make it, make it just impossible for me to do this. This kind of thinking misses the point of the law. If this was the point of the law, then the Israelites would have achieved the righteous standing that they were after because their desire was to keep it perfectly, but they kept failing. The point of the law is to mirror the holiness of God so that when we look at that perfect reflection, we see ourselves as we should. Those who have transgressed the law of God, people who continue to fall short. And this will either drive us to despair on one end, or drive us to faith in Christ on the other, or yet a third option would be just to drive us to self-righteousness. And we know that the purpose of the law is to drive us to a dependence on Christ Jesus. But some people, when it comes to the law, are driven to despair. Martin Luther was a great example of this. Martin Luther abandoned a promising career in, in law, To be a lawyer, he entered a monastery of Augustinian hermits. He wasn't a believer when he did that. He didn't do it out of um, because he wanted to learn uh, theology. He looked back on his life and was asked, and was thinking about the purpose of why he went into the monastery. And he said, "My purpose was not to study theology. My purpose was to save my soul." He was trying to find out how he could be saved. Wasn't going to find it being a lawyer. He might as well go off and be an Augustinian hermit. 
That's what monastic orders did. They prescribed ways in which one could find God. And Luther was the best of the best in the monastery. He spent hours and hours confessing until finally those who listened to his endless list of confessions told him to stop and come back when he had something worth confessing. On and on Luther's life goes until he started to study the Bible for himself. And he realized that he was trying to obtain a righteousness by his own effort. But what he needed was not his own righteousness, but what he called an alien righteousness. A righteousness that was not his own, but was perfect, that was credited to him. And of course, he gets this from Scripture. This is the gospel. That Christ died for us. That his righteousness is credited to us. And we know this is the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. As the Scripture tells. My point is, the law can drive us to despair. And it can drive us to Christ as our only hope. Some, though, just after all of this, don't seem to get it. The law doesn't produce in them this humility that, that drives them to Christ. It doesn't produce in them despair, but it produces in them self-righteousness. Luke 18, the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. You most likely know this, but the Pharisee looks at heaven and he prays. He says, I thank God that I'm not like other people. And then notice what he does. He starts naming the sins of others. Thank you, God, I'm not like these adulterers. I'm not like these swindlers. I'm not like this tax collector over there. He points at the sins of others, and then he starts pointing at himself. But instead of pointing out his own sin, he points to his own righteousness. You see how he's using the law of God? He's using it to point to the sins of others and then highlighting areas in which he's doing pretty well. We immediately see the Pharisees are self-righteous. And that's what self-righteousness is. It's when we point to the sins of others while pointing out our own goodness, our own righteousness. And this is perverting the law of God. In actuality, there is no place in the law of God for anyone to boast except for in Jesus Christ. So instead of being self-righteous when it comes to the law, we should become more and more aware of our own unrighteousness and turn to Christ and rest in what he has done for us on the cross. The hymn writer says it best. Not the labors of thy hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite no? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Augustus Toplady is right. That there are many that labor and have great zeal and they long for righteousness, even through their tears. But that's not enough. It's not your devotion that saves you. It is only through the faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ that saves. Look at verse 32 in Romans 9. Simple question there, why? Why is it the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have found it and those who pursued it through the law have not attained it? That's what he's asking. Here's the answer that he gives. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, 
Let me make something abundantly clear about this passage. It is clear that there are those who pursue righteousness by works and therefore will not be saved. And there are those who are saved that did not pursue righteousness through works at all. Some might ask at this point, well, where does obedience fit into all of this? Seems like you're taking obedience and, and throwing it out the window. We have to be obedient, don't we? That's a sermon for another time, but I will say this. What we're talking about here is how salvation is obtained. How we get it. And how we get it isn't by our obedience. That is something that comes into play later, and we'll talk about that later because Paul does. Let me just put this in our backyard a little bit. How often have you heard it said, or perhaps you've even said something like this, well, and you're, you're thinking about another person. Somebody asks you, hey, is so-and-so a believer? Because they think you know them. And somebody will say, well, I think that person's probably a Christian. I, th- I think they are. I, I really don't know if they go to church. I don't know what they believe. Um, but I know they, they're good. I've never seen them cuss. I've seen them treat other people really well. I think a lot of them, so do other people. They're really well-respected at at work or wherever. I think they're a Christian. In other words, we have no idea about where that person's faith rests. But if we would have to guess, we would think they're a Christian by their works. And by that same logic, we would have thought every Jew that Paul was talking about here was a Christian. We would think that Mormons and Buddhists and Christian scientists and all sorts of other people would be as well because they, by looking at their lives and how good they are, they must be. I would suggest that instead of guessing by people's behavior, perhaps we should get to know them and get into a real conversation with them and find out. and just put a plug in for the the home fellowship groups at this point, that's really the purpose of gospel fluency, is to be fluent in the gospel so that we can have these kind of conversations and get into these kind of conversations with people that, that actually mean something. Notice in verse 32, it says, because they did not pursue it by faith, they there in the text are the Jews The Jews did not pursue it. What is it? Is the law it? They did not pursue the law by faith? Can't be. Wouldn't make sense. The it must be what was obtained or not obtained in the case of the Jews. It's the righteous standing before God. The only way to have this righteous right standing before God lies not in what we can do, not trying to attain it, not even by obedience to God's law itself. This right standing before God comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. Justification, a right standing before God, is by faith alone, apart from works. Not faith plus something, but faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. It's coming to him and embracing him. 
at the cost of leaving our sin behind. When I think of faith in something, I think of an illustration that I heard a long time ago, and that is sitting in a chair. It's a simple illustration, but it's a good one. We don't even think about it often when we sit in a chair. We don't wonder, is that chair going to hold us? A lot of times we just go and sit in a chair and we just plop down. Someone used that illustration. I've not forgotten it because it's so good. The more biblical illustration would be in Matthew chapter 7. There you have the tale of two builders. One builds his house on a rock. His faith is resting on this rock and it stands the test of the storm. The other on sand and during the the first rain, windstorm and all of that, the house is then swept away because there's no foundation to it. In this illustration, Jesus is the rock on which our faith must rest because on anything else it's going to be swept away. In the previous verses, Jesus says that many are going to swear they know Jesus And Jesus is going to send them away on the last day and say, I never knew them. They're going to say, I did this in your name. I did that in your name. And Jesus is going to say, "Ah, depart from me. I never knew you. And this is seen in contrast with those who listen to the voice of Jesus and believe in him. So to quote the hymn writer, those whose faith has found a resting place on Christ alone, the solid rock. This idea of Christ being a rock on which our faith rests is seen in other places in the Gospels worth mentioning. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says something there very famous. You've you've heard it. He says to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Many have suggested that Jesus is saying that he's going to build his church on Peter. We hear this from time to time, that Peter's name means rock. Therefore, there's a play on words happening there. So he's building the church on Peter. Well, I think here's what's happening in that text. There's, there's definitely a pun on the word Peter. The Greek word for Peter is the word Petros. It, it means a piece of a rock. It, it can mean something like a, a pebble or something you put in a slingshot. But when Jesus turns around and said, on you, on you, Peter, you're Peter, you're Petros. Then he says, on this rock, uses a different form of the word. He uses the word Petra, which is not only a Christian rock band, it is, in the 80s, (laughs) it is a bedrock. It is the rock on which you build foundations. Jesus is saying, Peter, you are but a pebble, but I will build the church on myself. I am the bedrock. I'm the bedrock of my faith. It is me on Christ that you will never fall. You will never slip. If you put your faith and trust in me, you will never be put to shame. You will never stumble. Your faith will never be in vain. I mean, get this at the end of these verses. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. My friend, if you are relying on anything other than Christ Jesus for your salvation, for your right standing before God, 
You will fail. You will stumble. You will never be saved. Your only hope is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. But make no mistake that the churches in our country, in our communities, are full of people who are relying on something other than Christ as the bedrock of their faith. Instead of resting on what he has done for them, securing their right standing before God, they are out trying to do more to please God, to earn a right standing before God. They want to make sure that they're right with him. I know this because I read so many people. I read so many blogs, social media posts. I watch videos. And often I just want to scream through my tears and say, but Jesus said, it is finished. Stop what you're doing and trust. Quit trying to attain and reach the top. Quit trying to attain this this godliness so that God is going to be pleased with you. God is already pleased with you in Christ Jesus. Stop doing these things out of obligation. But put your faith and trust in the rock, in what he has already done for you. The law is anything that says, do this and live. In Jesus, he says it's already done. That's what we trust in. That's what we rest in. Jesus did all of that. And because of him, by faith, we are children of God and God couldn't be more pleased with us in Christ Jesus. And here's where obedience fits in. We continue over our Christian life to look at what Christ has done and we continue to to rest and trust in him, the bedrock of our faith. And then we do that. It is a delight to please him. To be obedient is not out of fear. It's not of obligation. There's no fear of failing. God isn't standing over us with a big stick ready to pounce, saying, do this, and if you don't do it enough, then you're going to fail. You're going to stumble if you don't do it enough. He's ready to accept us as his child because he loves us. A misplaced faith is a faith that comes crashing down because only a faith that rests on the rock will last. I think that's the point. Let's pray.